We'll be right back after this. I've actually been using today's sponsor for over three years and love them. And that company is Mint Mobile. After years of fine print contracts getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear me say Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you might think, what's the catch? But the cool part is that there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They don't have retail stores or salespeople, which cost a lot of money. Instead, they deliver premium phone plans directly to you. Say goodbye to your multi-hundred dollar phone bill per month and start using Mint Mobile where plans start as low as 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash fyshow. That's mintmobile.com slash fyshow. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash fyshow. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Now back to the show. You go to get on an airplane, you turn right. You sit down, you buckle your seat, you put your headphones in. Not a care in the world. You're making sure you're on time than whether or not you're going to die that day, right? You never turn left. Left is where we sit. Left is where the pilots sit. You don't know me. You've never met me. You have no idea if I'm qualified, but yet you trust me. You don't even come and ask for my credentials. You have no idea. Hey, Steve, you having a good day, bad day? What's going on? Nothing. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host... Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Steve Rosenberg to talk about systems and scaling. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. After a couple weeks uh, around the house, we decided to hit the road again. We went up to Chicago. It's a trip we had planned for quite a while. There's a little barbecue slash music festival. It's called the Windy City Smokeout in uh, Chicago. So, that was pretty cool. It had barbecue places from Texas, Mississippi, Missouri, Kansas, the Chicago area, like from all over the country. You could go through and sample different barbecue offerings. And then it was a, a music lineup that I really loved. It had Turnpike Troubadours, a guy named Zach Bryan that I really like, and Willie Nelson and his family. So, you know, might be one of the last times you get to see Willie because he, he is getting fairly old. But then we did that, and then we did a Cubs game, and then we did a little architectural boat tour, which was really cool. If you're ever in Chicago, I'd, I'd highly recommend that. Um, yeah, and was just staying with a coworker that I used to have. And I think this goes back to what, you know, I mean, you were always saying, which is keeping up those connections and there's no telling what it could mean. I mean, you know, it could mean a business opportunity, it could mean just a place opening up doors to get to explore a different city that you don't live in. Like there's, it's always really important to, I know both of us to keep those uh, connections and relationships going. And so that's definitely one that I'm really glad I held on to because uh, shout out to my friend, Max. We've said good friends, even though he, he no longer works at my company anymore. Yeah, I can definitely echo the value of having friends around the world and just friends who travel in general. Because, you know, when we went to Mexico, the fact that we could get a huge, massive villa was so much cheaper than if we were just to get like an Airbnb for two people. And actually, on the travel front, literally yesterday, last night, 
I just booked our flights. We're going to go to Hawaii for about six weeks from the end of October to the beginning of December because our friends are going there. One of them is a travel nurse, Angelica, and her boyfriend Kyle's going. So accommodation is way cheaper when you go with a group of four, for example. We're going to be staying on Hilo. I'm sure we're going to do a bunch of island hopping because the flights are like 35 bucks from island to island. But yeah, super excited for that to escape the New England cold weather. And yeah, then we'll be back in early December. Well, if you need to escape that winter anymore, you know, me and Leslie did book a month in Costa Rica. So that'll be from early January to early February. So we're doing a full month in Costa Rica on the Caribbean side. So if you if you need to escape that weather a little more, let us know. I'm sure we can find you a little Airbnb close by. I think the fact that we talk about travel so much, Justin, and I'm just going to say this out loud so it forces us to do it. We got to do a five show meetup somewhere. I know we've kind of done them like willy nilly, not really at conferences. And we've like met some of our listeners, but all right, listeners, we are going to organize some kind of a retreat someday, somewhere, because Justin and I are always on the road. And it's so awesome hearing real people, real stories who were impacted by our podcast. We've had people who have quit their jobs, people who have multiplied their incomes, people who have reduced their expenses, hit five way faster. And, you know, you guys oftentimes don't get to hear those stories because it's someone who just randomly walks up to one of us at a conference. So, And that's the coolest part about this podcast, though, is that we get to have this impact on such a broader community than if Justin and I were just like telling our friends about Phi. But Justin, that's enough about us and what we're up to. Let's talk about the star of the show, Steve Rosenberg. So as someone, I know we've talked about this on a million different episodes, I'm always talking about building systems, scaling, how can you turn something that's currently active into passive? And Steve is like me, but 20 years older. I'm not exactly sure how old he is, but Steve's just been at this for so long and he just breaks it down. Like these are the different segments in business. He talks about how there's like sales and marketing and operations. And here is how you segment them out. Which one should you start to delegate first? How do you actually build effective systems and processes? How do you tackle problems when they come up? He has a framework for everything, which just makes this episode so replicable and so actionable. And for me, Cody, the thing that stuck out about Steve's story is not just what he did, but kind of how he found himself in that position, right? Like he's a pilot, everything kind of falls apart. It was his dream job. 9-11 happens. He's kind of backed into this part of the industry. He's backed into real estate in general. And I know we don't even talk about this on the episode, but it just kind of reminds me of settling a lot of the fears that a lot of times we have when we're thinking about retiring early. Because this wasn't a career he even had on his map. It wasn't something that he'd thought about. It wasn't something he'd started. And it just shows you that if some kind of life event happens, if you are retired or, you know, in Steve's case, he was furloughed. But like, let's say you're in that retirement scenario, a life event happens and you need to form a new stream of income. This is just a great example of how those opportunities are always out there. And also, Steve, the specific opportunity that he really ran with in this property management business was out of necessity. You know, it was not because it's something he really wanted to. It was because no one else would do it. And so he decided to do it. And then he learned it really well and decided, and figured out he could do it better than anyone else. So I think there's just a lot of little inspiring tidbits here. So whether you or someone you know is wanting to start a business, scale a business, is worried about the future of their career, or just wants to hear a really awesome story, you can get all the details and links over at thefyshow.com slash Steve R. That's thefyshow.com slash S-T-E-V-E-R. I didn't come from a horrible background. I didn't come up walking through snow uphill both ways or anything like that. I grew up in Los Angeles and standard middle income family, but they also don't talk about money and that my age, I'm a little older than you guys, you know, money wasn't really talked about much. So I had to learn on my own. And normally that means making mistakes. I was always a conservative financial person, 
But I also thought that everybody should go to school, get a job and get a career and that career will take care of you. And I was 100% wrong on all fronts. And I learned, and I can tell you through my story, but I realized that school teaches us to be employees, not to be entrepreneurs, nothing wrong with either one, but there's a skill set for both. And one has to be following you know, rules, following lessons, doing what you're told to get a job, to pay your bills. And the other one means you basically throw all that out the window and you figure it out as you go. It just depends on what you want. Some people are thrust into being an entrepreneur like I was after 9-11. Other people choose it as a path. I don't know which one's better or worse, but they definitely have some ups and downs to both sides. So growing up, if you thought like, I think the path is you go to school, you get a job, what did that look like for you? What did you think your life was going to look like? Yeah. So growing up as a little kid, I would look up in the sky and I would see these big pieces of metal flying around called the airplanes. And I thought, man, that would be cool to do. Like, how does that happen? You know, I grew up in Los Angeles and I remember seeing planes going out way in the sky, going over the ocean. I'm thinking, where do they go? Like, where do they go from here? Cause it's just water from here. So I studied to be an airline pilot. I was hired with a major airline. I was 25 years old. I was the second youngest person hired by this particular airline. Average age is 35. I was 25. And I'm a very focused, driven, determined type person. And I got a job. And I had the best job in the world, being a commercial airline pilot flying internationally. My first base for this particular airline was in Guam, which is a little tiny island out in the South Pacific, out by seven hours past Hawaii, just to give you some reference. And I flew all over Asia, South Pacific, all that stuff, Australia. I had the safest, most secure job, best time of my life. And that all was true up until one day in history. It changed everything, changed it for a lot of people. That was 9-11, tragedies of 9-11. And the reason it changed me and my life is because 48 hours after the towers fell, I was given a furlough notice. And I was told, hey, Steve, you know what? Thanks for being this great, solid, stand-up employee, but we don't need you anymore. And you're about to be on the street with 50,000 other pilots, so good luck figuring it out. And just like that, I was on the chopping block. And you start to realize, unfortunately, that being an employee, there's no such thing as a safe and secure job, number one. You are basically at the mercy of a board of directors, and their job is to protect the company and the liquidity of the company, which I understand. But unfortunately, all I knew how to do was be a pilot. I did not know how to do anything else except fly a metal tube around in the sky. And what ended up happening was I ended up figuring out that I've got to do something different. And that led me into buying real estate and building businesses and stuff. But it was a very, very hard lesson, but it was a lesson that I'm glad that I learned. And I'm glad that it happened at the age that I did. And so what was that first move, if you can remember? So you go from having your dream job, you have a steady income at a solid company. Now your income goes to zero. I know you mentioned you get into real estate and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that today, but was it someone you talked to? Like what made you even turn toward real estate in the first place? And what was that first step towards doing anything? Yeah. So that's a good question. So I did not know anyone in real estate and this is 2001, 2002 ish. And I started looking to see what do people do that make money? Like, I mean, unfortunately, even though I could fly a very large aircraft around in the sky all over the world. I really wasn't marketable and I didn't have a skill set. Like I couldn't even get a job driving a commercial truck 
because I wasn't even qualified. I'm thinking, this is BS. Like I'm a pilot, but it's only good if you can fly a plane. So I started asking and looking around and just reading. And I wanted to see what do people do that are wealthy? Well, what ended up happening was, is the people that are wealthy were all tied at some level to real estate. I thought to myself, huh, okay. Don't know anything about it. I knew some pilots that own some rental properties and some guys own car washes and other stupid shit that they would do and fail. And I did see that a lot of people were tied to real estate. So I started learning as much as I could. I had to go to the library. For those of you that don't know what that is, it's a big building with books in it. And I had to get a library card because there was no YouTube or online stuff back then. And I had to get books. And every week I read a book. So I read one book a week. And the book a week that I did was nonstop all about real estate. And so for about a year, I read everything I could get my hands on. I wanted to learn everything. And then what I realized is after that, I had to start taking action. And first thing I learned was how to do what's called a double closing, which is basically two transactions going on at the same time at a closing table. I paid a mentor. It was like $10,000 to show me how to do this. And Within 30 days, I did a deal and I knew nothing. I had no idea what I was doing. And he told me, he goes, if you do what I say, it will work. I'm like, well, yeah, I just paid you $10,000. Why would I not do what you said? And he said, he laughed. He said, you'd be surprised. And I said, well, okay, whatever. So I did what he said. 30 days later, I kid you not, I'm sitting at a closing table, have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm doing like a double close transaction. And then I was done and I got a check for $20,000. I mean, I literally walked out of that title company and he was kind of on the phone, kind of guiding me the whole way. And I walked out of there and I told my wife, I'm like, I don't know how I just did this, but I just made 20 grand. Like, I don't even understand. So I basically, in the first 30 days, I paid for his service. And I said, man, I said, can I do that again? Like, that didn't seem so hard. Like, it was actually easy. And he's like, dude, you could do this all day long. And I said, I don't understand. I said, why don't people do this? This isn't illegal, right? I mean, this is up. And he's like, yeah, it's totally legal. I said, why don't other people do this? And he said, you know what? Because they talk themselves out of all the things they can't do. He said, don't listen to other people. He's like, you have proof that it works. Keep moving forward. And I remember that. And so as I started getting more in real estate, I started flipping properties and doing options and wholesaling and all the terminology, the acronyms people have nowadays, you know, but I just kept moving forward. Now I got ripped off. I got lied to. I got stolen from, you name it, it happened to me. And what I realized was I had no choice. Like I had to figure this out. It wasn't a, hey, this would be kind of cool one day to make some money. It'd be like, if I don't do this, I'm not going to be able to feed my family. So when your back is up against the wall, you'd be shocked at what you will figure out when you have to. And this was a have to. And so I just kept getting back up. I kept failing, kept getting back up. And I just started learning more and more about real estate. and. I started realizing that I was getting lied to, cheated, knocked down less and less times because I just kept getting back up and getting back up. And I didn't know any better. And slowly I started winning more and more. And I got so good at negotiating and learning about real estate that I bought my first apartment complex, met my business partner, and we went in partnership on this complex. And then from there, we ended up going and doubling down and buying a bunch of real estate, a bunch of houses. I think we had like, I don't know, maybe 40 something houses at the time. 
And one thing I've learned about real estate, which for those of you watching, you may be experiencing this very soon, is that real estate has a very interesting way that just when you think you're the smartest person and you know everything, it comes like a wrecking ball and it will clean your clock and take everything you own and it will wipe you clean if you don't know what you're doing. And that's what happened after we owned an apartment complex and bought a bunch of houses that we shouldn't have bought. And we bought a bunch of houses that were not the right properties for the model that we were trying to build. We thought we were smarter than everyone because we owned apartments and we were smart and this and that. And unfortunately, real estate doesn't care. And people will always rip you off if they can. And that's just not their problem. That's something that I needed to get better at. So I had to learn how to untangle a mess. And I think it was about 30 properties or so. We thought, okay, we know how to fix this problem. These were low-income properties. Tenants were calling all the time. We had an eight-month occupancy. Tenants would leave. And when they would leave, they would take parting gifts like wiring, copper, electrical. So we'd get like the shell of a house when we'd go back to it. And we're like, but we would advertise bad credit okay, rent special, because we wanted to get them in the door. And then we were like shocked that it didn't work. We're like, oh, that's weird. Like they left and they stole everything in the house. In hindsight, obviously. Well, our answer to fixing this problem was let's buy more. So we buy like another 15 properties. And if you've ever been to like a bonfire where you're watching a big fire and the crazy drunk guy goes and throws a big thing of gasoline on it and it just explodes and he's shocked that it happened. That was pretty much our faces when we realized what we just did. It got so bad that my wife said, if you buy another house, it better be nice because you will be living in it because you suck at buying <laughs> houses and you need to stop. So that was my moment, my aha moment. Like, okay, it's like an addict, right? When you're on the ground in the gutter, that was me. And all of a sudden I'm like, holy shit, I'm so emotionally close to this. We weren't looking at the data. We weren't looking at the numbers. We weren't running it like a business and it was collapsing around us. And I'm going somewhere with this story. So just bear with me. So what happened was, is we sat down and we said, okay, we've got some options here. Either we sell all these freaking shitholes or we've got to figure out how to systemize them and run them, or we just hand it over to a management company. Well, just to give you some reference time, this is in 2010, 2011, no one's getting a loan, right? Banks are not loaning anything. So no one's going to be able to buy these properties. Selling them was kind of out of the question. We didn't want to manage them ourselves. So we said, okay, we're going to talk to a management company. We owned an apartment. We knew what to do. The worst part was, is we just weren't doing it. We talked to a management company. He's like, let me make some phone calls. We'll hand these off. We'll be good to go. I'm like, thank God. So he calls me up a week later and he's like, hey man, I got some bad news. I'm like, please do not tell me that we bought another house because I'm going to have to move. He goes, no. He goes, nobody wants them. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, none of the management companies will take them. I'm like, what are you talking about? They said they're too time intensive. They don't make money. And it's just a waste of time. And you'll go bankrupt. I'm like, we're already going fucking bankrupt. We don't need them. So no management company would manage them. So we did the next thing that we didn't want to do. We sat down and we created a management company for our properties. We looked at it though, from the viewpoint of real estate investors and running it like a business. So we're like, okay, we have rules, we have policies, we have procedures. If they don't do it, we got to get them out. If this happens, that happens. So we just basically plumbed the infrastructure. We're not dumb guys. We're obviously not smart, but we're not dumb. So we started doing that. And after about six months, our properties stabilized. They stopped running us into the ground and people came to us and like, oh my God, what did you guys do? We're like, we just started running it like a business. 
And they're like, yeah, but what else? We're like, no, that was really it. We just were too dumb and we weren't running it like a business. So fast forward from there, we end up getting other people to approach us. They're like, hey, could you guys manage our properties? You guys seem like you know what you're doing. We're like, fuck, no, we don't want your problems. We barely, barely fixed ours. So, but then we thought, you know what? Maybe there's a business here. Maybe there's something here that we can grow and scale. So we go to a business coach. Doesn't know anything about real estate. All he knows is businesses. We said, look, here's what we did. Here's what we fixed. And here's where we're at now. And here's a potential future. He goes, well, he goes, you got opportunity. You've definitely got a market and there is way to grow. You two guys are not the smartest people on the planet and you'll be bankrupt in six months because you have no idea how to run a business. So we hire him on the spot. We now have a business coach and (laughs) we stayed with this business coach for seven years. Every single week we went in and got our butts kicked by this business coach. We took that company. We scaled it to over a thousand properties in three different cities. I started speaking all over the United States. I did three tours in Australia as a paid speaker. We ended up selling that company to venture capital and exited. And I became a vice president of this big company in Silicon Valley and all this stuff, all because we learned that businesses run off data and metrics and nothing else. It's the KPIs, it's the metrics, it's the numbers that run a business. And that runs your real estate as well. That's where I went with my story. And me and Cody love the story part. We love like getting to all those dominoes and understanding like what led to what. But you did mention one thing like this early on in your story that's a little tangible nugget that I don't know that we've talked about on the podcast where you mentioned a double close. Just if somebody's listening to this and like, oh, you know, he mentioned this double close thing, they just kind of skipped over. Could you walk the listeners through what that means? Sure. Let's say Cody is selling a house and I go to a house and I go and I negotiate a price with Cody. We'll just say for easy math, $100,000 property. And I go to Cody and I learn how to negotiate. One thing I realized is any business you do, it's all about relationships. It's all about communication. I don't care if you have the best strategy and you're the best engineer in the world. If you don't know how to talk to people, you won't make money. And communicators are the wealthiest people on the planet. So let me just preface it that. So I go to Cody and I talk to Cody. Cody's a motivated seller and Cody wants to sell his property. And I negotiate to buy his property for, let's just say, $70,000. The house doesn't need any work. It's in very good condition and he just couldn't sell it and he's in a time crunch. So he's motivated to sell it. I agree to buy it for $70,000. I take that property. I have what's now called an equitable interest in that property. I'm not an attorney. I don't claim to be. And I don't even know if these are good still today. So let me just preface all this. But basically I have an equitable interest in that property. So I can basically assign my rights to owning that property, which is the contract. But many contracts, and these at the time, these contracts in Texas were not assignable. So I had to basically figure out another way. So now I get Justin. I say, hey, Justin, I've got this house for $90,000. It's worth $100,000. It's ready to go, ready to move in. Justin wants to move him and his family and his 15 kids into the property. So Justin says, hey, I'm in. I'll buy that for $90,000. So I go to the closing table. I close with Cody for $70,000. Justin is basically in the room next door with his 15 kids and his family ready to buy the property. Once I take possession of that property, I go into the next room. I sit down with Justin and I go, okay, Justin, I'm going to sell it to you for 90. So there's a tax implication because you could be construed as paying double taxes on both sides. Another conversation, but basically that's a double close. I close with Cody, then I go and close with you. An easier way is doing what's called an assignment where you assign the contract and you get what's called an option fee, which is basically brokering in the middle. That was 
back in 2001, 2002, and I did that for several years. I'm assuming it's basically the same, but that's a double close. It's like a slightly more complicated form of wholesaling. Sounds like just the state didn't allow it. That's all it is. It's not rocket science. I did it without even knowing what I was doing. So trust me, it's not that complicated. So as you start to scale up this property management business, I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard, Steve, people are like, being a property manager is like kind of being in the middle of the worst sandwich ever. You have the owners who are constantly yelling at you for whatever the hell is going wrong. Then you have the tenants who are coming to you with all these issues. I know you're the business coach, but why property management? Maybe there are people who are saying the exact same thing that I just said in your ear. Why did you think that that was the best path forward? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug-and-play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. Well, you also forgot the contractors are bitching at you too. So you got contractors yelling at you because they want their money. Owner doesn't want to pay. Tenants getting evicted. And you're in the middle trying to keep it legal. (laughs) Triple threat. (laughs) The first way we started it is because it was a need for us, right? We needed it. And again, just when you look at businesses, a property management company is almost recession proof. And what I mean by that is in good times, you're managing assets for people that are investors. They're buying properties. They're investors, right? Now, educating the investor on how to be a good investor is another story, right? But you're managing properties on the investors. Then you are in bad times when people can't sell their houses, which is like what's going to be coming. All of a sudden you have what's called reluctant landlords. They couldn't sell their house. They're moving to Dubai. They got divorced, whatever the case may be. And they can't sell the property because they have no equity. So now they become reluctant landlords where you're managing the asset for them until the market comes back up. So there's really no downside to the economy. That's number one. Number two, and I hate to say this, but the reality is, is the property management business is much like the airline business. It's a nickel and dime industry, right? There's a lot of layers of revenue to be made in the property management business. And when we were talking to some private equity people that were looking to invest in our company, they say it's all about layers, right? There's layers in any business. They said they stopped counting at 19 layers of revenue in the property management industry. So there's a lot of ways to slice up that thing, whether it's through the tenant, through the contractor, depending on the scale and size that you are, it's a lot of steady money coming from multiple areas and you really don't need to buy any hard assets. So the only value of a property management company is the contracts. We don't have to buy work trucks. We don't have to buy any utilities. We don't have to buy any of that stuff. Our thing is our contracts with our tenants and our owners. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. But yes, we used to joke, we're like the trash men of the real estate industry. Nobody wants us, but they need us. It's like whenever someone calls, they're either calling to yell at you or fire you. No one ever calls, hey, you guys are doing a great job. 
I've had a rental property for 10 years. I haven't heard from you. Just wanted to make sure you're still alive. We don't get those calls. We get the you suck call. You know, why are you costing me money call? We, you know, those are the calls we normally get. It's kind of like the payroll team. I don't think anyone's ever called whoever your company is and said, you know what? I appreciate my check being on time. It's only, only when there's something's missing. <laughs> being an airline pilot, I relate it to more like when you're standing in a bad weather and there's a storm out there and you see that line for like half a mile in the service center and people like camping out with sleeping bags and chairs. No one there is there to tell them the airline's doing a great job. You know, <laughs> that poor person at that agent is just dealing with one problem after the other. But you know what? Every time that person leaves, they wipe it. They have a smile for the next person. That person yells and screams and spits on them. They wipe it and they smile for the next person. So whether it's a glutton for punishment or what, you get to meet some very interesting people. That's for sure. You get to see how wealth works, the ties. We are in talks with the Malaysian government at one point about using our systems in our company. I was speaking touring through Australia. So it can open a lot of doors for you. That's for sure. Well, speaking of like a glutton for punishment, you mentioned like that real estate can can come and swipe and hit you right in the face, you know, right when you think you got it figured out. And you started investing back in like 2001, 2002. A lot of our listeners for sure. And I mean, even many of our guests were not investing in real estate that long ago. So what was it like, you know, you're going through that. And then when like 2008, 2009 happened. Well, you know, the, I hate to say misconception, but the challenge people have is when they're talking about real estate, right? And just think about this. Let's say I had a rental property and it was renting for $2,000 a month here in Houston, Texas. And the family decides they're going to buy a house and they go and buy a $400,000 house, which they really could not have afforded, but they bought it. And all of a sudden, John, the new homeowner loses his job. What happens to John? He doesn't turn into sugar and melt. He loses his house. Where does he go? Slides back down to be a renter. In a recessionary market, the rental market actually becomes fatter. You don't lose money on your property unless you actually sell it. It's all irrelevant until the day you sell it. So when we went through 2008, people were like, oh my God, you guys must be dying. This now the thing. We're like, why? There's actually more renters out there now because they're all losing their houses. They come back down to be renters now. So in a bad market, owning the rental property is actually not a bad place to be. And during inflationary periods, real estate is historically one of the best places that you can park your money. So we really didn't feel the crunch. But again, you're probably talking to people that are doing velocity business, like flipping, wholesaling. Yeah, those people are you know stuck. People that are doing developments, that are trying to build syndication people. I think a lot of apartment people did and will get hurt this next round because people slide out of the A's and B's and they slide back into the C's. I'm sure you know Brandon Turner, my buddy Brandon. He always talks about the compression spring. That's why he likes mobile home parks. He's like, that's the bottom of the compression spring. Everybody slides back down to there. They can't go anywhere from there except for maybe a tent. But other than that, you know, they're going there. So when you think about it, you're only hurt if you sell. So if you wiped out the, like if we wiped out the noise of 2008 and we never turned on the news, We'd be like, wow, there's a lot more renters out there right now. I wonder what, and now it's price and demand. All of a sudden there's more renters. Guess what happens? The price goes up because shit, I had five people. Now I've got 50 people that want to rent my price and demand. I'm just giving you my perspective. I could be way off. I'm just, I think the people that get hurt are the ones that have the high end, right? So when you're on the upper end, you know, it's like a pyramid, right? When you're at that upper pinnacle of the A type properties that are very expensive, that's where people slide out of. That's what you're going to see in a lot of apartment complexes. You're going to see a lot of people sliding out of those and you're going to see a lot of vacancy. Again, this is just my opinion. 
vacancies of people coming out of the A's and B's and slipping down B's to C's? So I think we're probably going to have a decent portion of listeners. I know we have a decent portion of our listeners who do invest in real estate, but they might be listening right now and they're like, wow, Steve, I think you're really right about property management being recession proof. So for those who maybe have a couple dozen units or even a couple units and they think they have rock star systems in place, maybe talk through your own journey. How did you guys like systematize, make your property management a business? And then how'd you go and market that to other people to get them to actually sign on with you? And here's the thing is it doesn't matter what you do. I don't care if it's property management, anything, all businesses run under the same chassis. Now I'm, I'm giving you some background of me being coached, you know, for the last 20 years, but seven years with this particular business coach and all businesses run under the same chassis. You have marketing makes the phone ring. Sales answers the phone. They convert those people to clients. Operations takes that client, processes the transaction, gets repeat customers over and over again, and gets referrals. And accounting pays everyone. So you have marketing, sales, operations, and accounting. That's the chassis of any business. I don't care if it's a rental property. I don't care if you're United Airlines, Coca Cola, Chevy. It's all the same. So I'm going to go back to the airline industry because that's my kind of where I come from. And what we did is, is we learned how to systemize our company so that it could run without us. One of the biggest challenges people have in anything that you do is number one, you don't know who your target is. You don't know who you're going after. You don't want that phone ringing. People, I ask people, who's your target? Everyone. Well, that's fucking stupid. Not everyone's going to be your target, right? You have a specific target. There's an age, there's a gender, there's a geographic, and there's a demographic. And more importantly, they have a problem. What problem are you solving for that target? If I'm talking to people that are evicting their tenants and I'm like, hey, we have an eviction protection program, that's great. It's going to resonate with them because they have a problem. If they're in Washington, Seattle, Washington, and I'm in Houston, Texas, wrong geographic area. I missed the mark, right? So I've got to market to the right people. Then once they call, I've got to be able to get them to convert them to do that. And then the operations, this is key because if you want to grow and scale anything that you do, You've got to learn how to systemize and make your business run on processes, procedures, and checklists, just like an airline, right? Do I have a couple of minutes? I can paint you a story of how businesses run based on a plane. Let's do it. Yeah. So I fly a Boeing 777 aircraft. Okay. This is, uh, if anyone's been on an airplane, it's a jumbo jet. It holds 380 people. Okay. The gross takeoff weight of this aircraft is 775,000 pounds. This big thing is like an apartment complex with wings, right? When this thing comes up to the gate and anyone's been in an airport or seen a plane come to a gate, the average person sees just a flurry of stuff going on. All these people running around like ants. But what we see in the industry is what's called the dance. So think about it. I want you to imagine this. And next time you're at the airport, I want you to, I want you to think about this story. You have 380 people getting off the aircraft. All of their bags and all the cargo in the belly is getting offloaded and it's all getting dispersed to their next destination or wherever they're going. You've got cleaners cleaning the airplane. You've got catering. They're catering the aircraft. You've got flight attendants doing their safety checks, right? Maintenance is checking the aircraft, making sure everything is safe for it to fly. Fuelers. Fuelers are hooking up these huge fuel valves, right? They hook these big valves up. This plane holds 230 thousand pounds of fuel. It takes almost an hour to fuel this plane. Okay. We pilots are up in front. We're doing safety of flight items. We're checking weather, destination, routing, all that stuff. 380 people get back on this aircraft. All of their bags are reloaded. 
And within one hour, this plane pushes back from the gate. And here's the thing. None of us had to talk to each other for this to happen. We all know our jobs, our roles, and our duties. Now, this doesn't just happen in Houston, Texas. It happens in London, England, Tokyo, Japan, Sydney, Australia, Rio, LA, everywhere. That is a perfect scalable system. Think of your business. Now, every business has a dance. Some is a chaos mosh pit and some is like a tango, but everyone has one. But if your business could run that way, that I could sit down in a position in your business and do the job, the roles, the tasks and duties without ever having to ask you, Cody, how do I do your job today? Because you've got systems and manuals and checklists. That's a scalable model. So going back to the property management question, the reason we were such a prime target to be acquired is these venture capital company was like, how did you guys do this? Like, how did you guys systematize your business? 60% of our company was outsourced to Mexico with virtual assistants. We got so good at understanding right person, right seat that we were able to outsource. Now, from a revenue standpoint, we took our payroll, which was 60% of our revenue and brought it down to 33%. So from a numbers perspective, when you're doing several million dollars a year in revenue, that's all profit because we're able to understand how to systematize and run our company. So if somebody wants to be a property management company, the biggest challenge most people have in property management or any business is they think that they need to do it all. They think that they are the people, the smartest person that care the most. That's, that's ego and pride. And those are success inhibitors. You've got to understand that when you own a business, it's got to be systematized. It's got to be automated and you've got to leverage it. So I'm a big believer and I, and I coach a lot of real estate people. I coach businesses. One of the first things I do is I look at what they do and I say, okay, first thing we have to do is we've got to streamline and systemize it. Then we've got to automate it. And then we outsource it. If you could do that in your life, you'd be amazed at how much more efficient you would be and how much more productive you would be with the right time of things. And when you look across other property management companies or real estate investors, what was that one area that you were able to systematize that you felt like was the most powerful that other people just weren't doing? Getting the owner out of the business. You know, it's, <laughs> it's funny because this was very essential for me and my business partner. When we were building our business, we were one of the fastest growing companies in Texas at one point. I mean, we were just growing exponentially fast and people are coming to us. They're like, these guys have been in business 20, 30 years, right? And they're like, oh my God, how are you guys doing this? And the thing that we started to understand is that we didn't identify ourselves as property managers. We owned a business. That business just happened to be property management. But those other people, a lot of people identify themselves as a property manager. That's their identity. That's not my identity. I didn't give a shit if I was selling dog food, hair products. It didn't matter to me. We just happened to sell property management. That's a service. It's a widget. So what we realized was the biggest challenge in business is the business owner. It's me getting the business owner out of their own way to let the team do what they need to do. That's really it. Like another quick example, when you go to get on an airplane, same example, and I use this when I'm speaking to business owners and even when I'm on big stages, you go to get on an airplane, you turn right, you sit down, you buckle your seat, you put your headphones in, not a care in the world. You're making sure you're on time than whether or not you're going to die that day, right? You never turn left. Left is where we sit. Left is where the pilots sit. You don't know me. 
You've never met me. You have no idea if I'm qualified, but yet you trust me. You don't even come and ask for my credentials. You have no idea. Hey, Steve, you having a good day, bad day? What's going on? Nothing. But now when you have a business, right? Business owners, whatever it is, I don't care if you're property management, real estate, it doesn't matter. If your employee's messing up, you may help them out. If they're really messing up, you may kind of start helping them more. And if they're about to get you sued or get you in trouble, you'll push them out of the way and do their job for them. I've never in 30 years as an airline pilot ever had a passenger come up and be like, hey, Steve, I think I got this today. You're just not doing it the way I thought you would. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in. So you trust your life with me, someone you've never met, but you don't trust the person that you interviewed, you trained, supposedly, hired. You won't trust them with your financial life, but you'll trust me with your personal life and you don't even know me. Pretty interesting when you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> that is a, I don't think I've ever taken a left when I walked into an airplane and asked the pilots anything. So no one does. Example. Yeah. When it comes to the systems and scaling. So I just want to get really tactical for the listeners out there who are like, okay, I think I get it. I need to systematize the marketing, the sales, the operations for someone who's a solopreneur or even a small team. And they're just doing everything right now. Is there one segment of the business that's more important to outsource and scale first and then move on to the other ones like just say the person's limited on budget or time like what should they focus on first is it the sales the marketing i'm a big believer that number one you focus on marketing because if no one obscurity is the biggest challenge so if nobody knows who you are in any business a successful business normally has two people you have a visionary and you have an integrator right the visionary is a big picture person they're the outgoing person they're extroverts the integrator is the guy who's creating all the systems to make sure they work. So in this relationship, I would say, Cody, you're probably the visionary. Justin would be the integrator just from Justin's background, what he told me, right? So the challenge is, is it's always a tension, right? The operator's like, I just need better systems. Salesperson's like, that's boring. I just need to get more people, right? There's nothing wrong with either. You actually have to have both. But the problem is, is most entrepreneurs are not good marketing and salespeople. They're doers. So they worked for someone and they said, you know what? I can do it better. So they start doing and they create all the systems for their business, but nobody knows they exist because they don't know how to market. So going back to your question, I believe marketing is the first thing that definitely needs to be done because if no one knows who you are, it really doesn't matter. You're going out of business because your, your open sign's not even on. But what I do believe also, and one thing I do when I coach people, is I do a two-week time study because I want to see where their time goes and I want to see what they're good at and what they suck at. And the reality is, is where there's going to be, Cody, there's some things that you're probably be really good at and there's things, Justin, that you are not good at and vice versa. Normally, it's a compliment, right? You offset each other. So why would I want to go to accounting school, learn accounting for the next two years so that I can balance my books when I can just hire someone in 10 minutes, right? It makes no, that's leverage. So I think that you outsource the things that you're not good at and the things that you don't like doing. So that's why virtual assistants are really good because you can start offloading your day, but offloading and leveraging is very important, but you first start with what the business needs and what you are not good at and what you do not excel at doing. You may suck at it, but don't suck as much as that. You suck more at this. So, okay, that one's got to go first. I do believe marketing needs to be first. If you're a great marketer, you're a great talker, you're a great chatter then maybe operations is something that you outsource first so that you can focus on your strengths. I'm a big believer in playing to your strengths and outsourcing your weaknesses. 
So you're obviously very comfortable with this idea of, of outsourcing. I mean, it definitely helps you scale. And I think it's, it's a must if you're going to grow something like this. Yeah. But I also imagine that you probably were like most people at some point where you had trouble letting go of something. What was something when you were trying to build this out that you had the hardest time like letting go of the reins? And once you did, it was successful, but you just had a hard time letting it go. That's funny. Good question. Yeah. Sales. I love selling. I love marketing and I love selling. I love closing people. I just love it. Right. It's kind of the thrill of the hunt to me, to be honest. And so my business partner one day comes to me, he's like, hey, we're going to hire this sales girl. And I'm like, what's she going to sell? He's like, she's going to sell management contracts. I said, that's what I do. Like, that's stupid. He's like, no, he's like, I need you to be doing bigger things. He's like, I need you to get on stages, get on podcast shows, speak around the country. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to keep closing. He's like, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah. So we had this conversation. He's like, look, so 80, 20 rule. He gives me all these analogies. I'm like, those are stupid. I'm like, there's no one that can. I'm like, they can't close as good as me. I'm like, that's stupid. So one year, I think in one year, let's say I, I did 180 contracts, you know, which was pretty good. Most companies even ever grow to 250 total. So in one year I did like 180, right? I'm thinking, okay, yeah, good luck matching me. She did like 250 her first year out of the gate. I was like, <laughs> whoa. Like, so then that was my aha moment that I realized, okay, that's when I started realizing, okay, leveraging is good. I was always a big believer in leveraging low-level tasks, low-level, low-enjoyment tasks, but all of a sudden starting to see like, okay, because that was her only focus. That's all she did was close deals. I was still trying to grow a business. I was having conversations. I was speaking on stages. So that wasn't getting all the attention the way she was giving it all the attention. That was a big ego, pride. We all have it. And that was a big moment for me to realize it. One thing I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about, just because it's just a sh such a short little clip, but such a hilarious story is Brandon Turner chainsaw tree story. The reason I'm asking that though, and you can tell the quick and dirty version, but you just seem like someone who you're faced with a problem, you get something done. I'm curious, like when something does go wrong in one of these businesses, like you could think you have the best outsourced business ever, but something's going to go wrong and something that's going to fall on your plate, kind of like what you were saying in the worst case scenario, that's when you shove the person out of the way and do their job for them. So tell that story quickly. And then if you can think of a, another good example of like where you had to just like, you know, buckle up, hop in the driver's seat because something was going terribly wrong in one of your businesses or life. Yeah. Yeah. So the Brandon Turner, I was there for a mastermind. Tarl Yarber, good buddy of mine, invited me to the, it was the first mastermind at Brandon Turner's house. And I got to meet Brandon and we did a podcast show together and Ryan Murdoch was there and we were hanging out and this tree fell down and they're like, well, you know, what are we gonna do with the tree? Or it was about to fall or I don't know something. I think Brandon only had like a skill saw. Like it was like, it wasn't even a real saw. He's like, I got this skill saw. I'm like, all right. I'm like, look, get out of the way. Like, let me do this. So, so I, I kind of <laughs> took control and started chopping up the tree and started slicing up and we're carrying it. And we, you know, I mean, I didn't even know him. I literally met him a couple minutes prior to that, but you know, it was just like, just get it done. Like everyone's, you know, we're kind of talking about me and Ryan. We're looking at it, trying to figure out, okay, you know, we got a spoon and we got a skill saw and we got like a trowel, you know, we're like, okay, well, I'm like, well, give me the skill saw. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm wearing like flip-flops. I'm in Maui. I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be great. Like I'm going to slice off my freaking leg because I'm trying to help this guy cut down his palm tree. I don't even know him, you know, but that's how it happened. So yeah, Brad is just a good dude. Really, really just a genuine, really nice guy. I enjoy him and all of that whole crew. Very strong friendship with all of them. I'm glad I did it. But as far as the emergencies, you know, one thing I always tell people is when you're dealing with an emergency, there's certain ways to deal with an emergency. Most people do not deal with them correctly. In the cockpit, and I'll use a flight deck because this is very relatable to business. I actually just did a video on this the other day. 
the way we pilots deal with emergencies is we deal with them all the same every single time. It doesn't matter, right? Whether we have an engine on fire, depressurization in the cockpit, right? Smoke in the cabin, a drunk passenger. It doesn't matter. We deal, we are taught very much, very methodical on how to deal with emergencies. And I use that in our business. And so the first thing we're taught, let's just say an engine catches on fire, which is a very scary, traumatic thing, which I've had happen before bells and whistles and lights are going off and scares the crap out of you. And you're like, Oh my God, we're going to die. But what we do up front is the first thing we do is we take a breath. We just stop. We don't do anything. We actually sit back and we take a breath. The reason we do that is we want to assess what's going on because there are many times that if you jump into action, you could actually jump into action doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, meaning shutting down the wrong engine, the only running engine, shutting down the wrong engine. So the first thing we do is we stop and we take a breath. That's number one. Number two is we establish roles and duties. Okay. Somebody has to fly the aircraft. So if you're looking around and there's no one in charge, you're in charge. So you've got to take command of the situation. First thing we do is, okay, I've got the aircraft. You pull out the checklist. You talk to air traffic control. Just tell them we lost an engine, right? We establish roles and duties. We're still not dealing with the fire yet, just so you understand, right? So I'm flying the airplane. Now, the reason these, all these things have happened is these crashes have happened in the past that have caused these reactions that we do now for training. I'll give you an example. There was a Eastern Airlines, I think it was an L-1011 going into Florida back in the 70s. They put the landing gear down, which is three gear down and lock lights. Justin probably knows about this. Three gear down and lock lights. These are micro switches that basically say, okay, the gear's down. Well, one of the lights didn't come on. So the whole cockpit crew was looking at this light. They were changing out the bulb. They got out their bulb box and they're looking at the bulb. All three of them were focused on that bulb. One of them hit the autopilot switch and slowly but surely the plane started to descent and no one paid attention. And it ran the plane right into the ground and killed everyone over a two cent light bulb because nobody flew the airplane. And I want you to think about this when it comes to business, right? Someone's got to be in charge of the situation when an emergency is going on. Don't care if you're the right person, somebody take control. Next thing we do is we identify the problem. Do we all agree that the left engine is on fire? We all look out the left engine and we're like, yep, that's definitely on fire. Okay. Let's confirm it. So you identify it and then you confirm it. We look at all the gauges. Everybody see left. Yep, we all see left. Okay, we saw left. We all agree left. Yep, it's on fire. Okay, so first thing is take a breath. Second thing is establish roles and duties. Third is identify and confirm. And the last thing, which is what most people don't do, especially in business, is we work to the solution. First thing we say again is, okay, I'm flying the aircraft. You pull out the left fire checklist. You call air traffic control, tell them to roll the crash and fire rescue, get us a place to land. You talk to the passengers and maintenance control and let everyone know what's going on. Everyone's working to the solution, right? No one's saying, I got the plane. No, I got the plane. No one's saying, I'll call air traffic. Everyone's doing it. The time to have the, it's not my fault. Don't yell at me. I was late to work. You were drinking last night. All those conversations will be had on the ground during the investigation. We don't talk about it there. Let's work the problem, work the solution. Many times when people have a problem in their business, they're so busy blaming each other. No one's putting out the fire. They're so busy trying to protect themselves and trying to make sure that they weren't wrong. They're flying the plane right into the ground because nobody's flying the airplane. And what's interesting is, is for people that are in business that are watching this, as you grow, business does not get any easier. You have to continually get better. 
You have to keep getting better. Problems don't go away. The bigger you are, the bigger the freaking problem. I can tell you that right now. You have to grow, put on your big boy pants. We fly bigger planes. We have bigger problems. All of a sudden, we got to deal with different issues. So when you're dealing with an issue, try those things. And that's how it works in business also. It's kind of like when you're driving in your car and you hit a big pothole and you're just staring at the pothole in your rear view mirror and then you crash into the car in front of you. Why? Because you're so focused on the problem, you're not looking at the solution. There's nothing you can do about the pothole. There's nothing we can do with that engine melting off the wing out there. We can't stop that. But we can work the problem to come to the solution. That makes sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually think that it, it ties back really well into this idea of outsourcing and, and doing systems. Because if you feel like you're stretched thin as a business owner, when everything's going well, just imagine when something goes wrong, you're not going to be able to accurately assess and take care of the solution because you're already stretched thin in the good times. So the bad times are going to be in a really bad place. Yeah. Well, Steve, for those who want to connect with you, follow you on social media, learn more about what you do and your story and all the coaching, where are some of the best places for folks to do that? Yeah. First place, they can go to my website, steverosenberg.com. It's R-O-Z-E-N-B-E-R-G. They can follow me on Instagram. I got a YouTube channel. I got a, you know, Twitter, all the, all the Facebook, all the stuff. I do have a mastermind coming up in October. It's pretty good. I've got Brad Lee, who owns Lightspeed VT. Uh, I've got the Iron Cowboy, who has two Guinness records. I've got a guy named Kevin Elko, Dr. Kevin Elko. He is actually Nick Saban's mindset coach for the Alabama Crimson Tide. And I've got Errol Allen, who is the guy who actually systematized and showed us how to process our company so that it ran without us and we could eventually scale it and sell it. So that's going on October 12th through the 14th in Houston. If someone wants to know, they can send me a message. Happy to talk to them about it. But I'm all about helping people. If you send me a message, I get back to you. It really is me. It's not a bot. It's not a VA. It actually is me getting back to you. So if you got a question, you want to ask me something, you want to know more about property management, I'll try to talk you out of it. But if not, I'm happy to help you and give you some advice and some (laughs) tips and all that stuff. I'm a big believer that if somebody asks me for help or advice, just a matter of respect that I answer. I also believe that as entrepreneurs, real estate investors, whatever we do, we're in the minority. Because as I said early on, everyone's trained to be an employee, not an entrepreneur. And so for us to be entrepreneurs, I think we're a pretty tight group and I think that we should help each other out. And so I'm a big believer that I was helped out and I believe in helping other people out as much as I can. So if I can help someone clarify something, answer something, anything, you want to come to the mastermind and meet some very, very high level people, shoot me a message. I'm happy to help you. Well, Steve, thanks so much for giving us the time and the listeners, all this great information, as well as loving the analogies, love the energy you bring. So appreciate you giving us that time today. No problem. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Good luck with everything on the show. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.